I'm sitting here just after reports have come out that the suicide bombings that occurred outside Kabul airport killed many more people than initially suspected. And they were truly massive suicide bombings. In my last podcast, I criticized the U.S. Well, not really criticized. I noted that the U.S., like many of the countries, has a hard time keeping its long-term promises. And that, more than anything, led to the eventual failure to the Taliban. But the Taliban were a little bit like the coronavirus. As long as you kept fighting it, throwing vaccines at it or whatever, you kept it in check. As soon as you threw up your hands and said, no, we're not going to do anything, well, then it ran and washed over you. Now, in the case of the coronavirus, that we come with immunity, we kill a certain number of people and you'd move on. In the case of the Taliban, uh, they're more like a cancer. They're going to grow and grow and grow, um, and they'll spread their terror and their disease and their um, violence more and more places. But while all this was occurring, before the fall of Kabul, you kept seeing Western commentators saying, but the Taliban aren't keeping their agreements. But the Taliban agreed not to do this. But the Taliban agreed, agreed, agreed. As if people don't seem to understand that the agreements you make with these sorts of people are completely valueless. Yes, the U.S. may fail to live up to its obligations, but the Taliban only uses the obligations of others in order to take advantage of them. They are fundamentally dishonorable. Because that sort of dishonorable dishonor is acceptable in their society. My mother was fond of quoting philosopher, an Indian philosopher, I believe, or economist, who said that you had a shift in the fundamental value systems of societies as they shifted from pre-industrial and pre-mercantile to societies that depended on trade in order to function. In a society that depends on trade in order to function, you can't have rampant lying. Lying becomes one of the cardinal sins. But in a society that is pre-trading, where honesty in business is not one of the core values that's necessary to sustain the society itself, lying falls down the food chain. It becomes much less important relative to other sins like dedicating yourself and giving your life for God. Or any number of other things. We can see it in the Torah. Lying falls below many other things, and even protecting, you know, you don't protect your wife, but you're protecting your life. You're lying to other people about who Avraham is lying about, who his wife is. Yaakov is lying about various and sundry things. Somehow, it drops down the value chain. And we in the West, with our society, have a very hard time accepting that on the one hand, but understanding it on the other hand. We react as if we expect the commitments other people make to be held, when in fact they're never intended to be held. They're simply short-term truths that you use to take advantage of the situation. Diplomacy is a weapon. A weapon used to try to take advantage of those who believe that these sorts of words, treaties printed on paper or what have you, have real force, have real power. I'll give a simple example. Forget the Taliban for a second. Just internally within a society. Many societies have beautiful constitutions. They guarantee all sorts of things. But they're absolutely meaningless words on a piece of paper because... The people within society 
place no value on those words or on their enforcement. And so you end up with pretty words that have no weight behind them. What makes a civil society work is that it has a cultural understanding underpinning those words, and the words themselves end up only being a reflection of what already exists. You write a constitution for Afghanistan, unless it's already something that's a part of Afghani culture, and you're just nudging a little of this, nudging a little that way, you're going to end up, or you have a society that's very malleable and has strong civic values and is willing to change, you're going to end up with a society that ignores that constitution altogether. It has no value. It has no weight. This is one of the big challenges. Uh, listen, I, I can pile on with everybody else. It's obvious that I can join in and decry, number one, what Biden has done, in my opinion, closing Pogrom Air Force Base and stopping the air support for the very successful um, uh, Afghani commandos was an unthinkable Stupid, stupid thing to have done. At the very least, having Bagram Air Force Base would have been a much better place with which to bring people out than Kabul Airport. I can pile on and point out all the idiocy of the decisions that are being made at the top at this point in time. I mean, just incredible stupidity, and there's really no way out of it. Even if you were to declare Biden incompetent, and get him out of office, you'd end up with Kamala Harris, and I really doubt that she has any more talent to manage things. And I don't know who's next in line, Nancy Pelosi? The U.S. has put itself into a situation that is atrocious. Not only was this withdrawal ultimately immoral, I'm not suggesting the U.S. should have continued to lose soldiers, but the U.S. has lost more soldiers to combat today than I think they've lost over the last five, six years combined. This has been an absolutely bungled and terrible effort, but it's also been an immoral effort. Because we had a friends, we had a society, we were supporting them. It was what was a relatively low cost. Initially, costs were very high. When the U.S. was the ones in all these villages fighting back, the costs were very high. But the Afghanis took over that. So yes, I obviously could join in and pile on on President Biden and his crew for the decisions that have been made and the execution that's been done. But what I care much more about is what to do going forward. <clears throat> and I'm really not terribly interested in the politics, partially because I find myself disagreeing so much with everybody that I don't fit the political arguments, hey, that guy's good, that guy's bad. I don't tend to be impressed by anybody. I listen to the last few presidents from <clears throat> George W. Bush onwards. I heard each of them speak once. That was enough for me in part because I disagree with them, in part because I just I just don't respect the speaking uh, and what they have to say. It's, it's terrible, but I don't. What I care a lot more about is ideologies and general practices and strategies than I care about the personalities involved and what they're trying to achieve for themselves. And I know they're inseparable. I know that personalities play with policies and ideas and ideologies in order to get themselves into a position to have the power to execute things and all that kind of stuff. I get it. And so I'm kind of naive in standing on the sidelines and saying I'm going to try to ignore the politics. But I'm going to try to ignore the politics and focus on the policy. So what happens now? The U.S. is going to withdraw from the airport. Who knows how many lives are going to be lost in the process of doing that?
the Taliban forces were massed on the edges of Kabul, and because the U.S. was honoring its treaties, it didn't take that opportunity to blow them off the face of the earth. And we expected the Taliban to honor their treaties when they got to the airport? Come on. That's not the way that it works. So what do we do now? First off, Afghanistan is in for a terrible future, at least in the near future. But the Banjir Valley has uh, the reenactment of the Northern Alliance. And as I've said before, the U.S. has to do everything it can to recognize that government and to open up the foreign currency reserves the United States holds and the special drawing rights, which together are worth close to $9.5 billion to that government. Because the Taliban might control Afghanistan, but they are not going to be a party to any treaty with the United States. People like to talk about the new Taliban, but they're not seeing that these people have the same value system they had 20 years ago. They're just better at guerrilla warfare than they were then. So by all means, I think the U.S. should support the Panjshir Valley, and because it's not politically feasible for the U.S. to do so with troops, they should do so with recognition and with cash. Because the cash isn't ours. They should do it with Afghani cash. But there's long-term risks just all over the place from this. People compare this to, to Vietnam, but this isn't Vietnam. This is Iran. This is 1979 all over again, and Biden is playing the role of President Jimmy Carter. And just like Jimmy Carter, he's probably going to have a number of other and additional failures. I'm going to pile on one on top of the other, all informed by this naivete about the world and how it actually works. But the U.S. wants to make the world a better place. I want to make the world a better place. You want to make the world a better place. So when we're dealing with people like the Taliban or Hamas or the Iranian government, Hezbollah, etc., how do you do that? There's really, in my opinion, two levels of dealing with that. On the one level, you have to constrain them. You have to prevent them from being in a position to do mass harm to others. And you do that with military force or the threat of military force. The U.S. and Israel both have an obligation to have military force ready to constrain the actions and make them think twice, thrice, 15 times before they do something. And if the U.S. is not getting involved in Iran or Afghanistan, is withdrawing and Israel is not involved in Iran although it is right now because we have a war going on between the two sides but that war is driven only by Iran's desire to wipe out Israel Israel has no desire to wipe out Iran itself not even the government if it wasn't so antagonistic as I said before if you're dealing with a situation where somebody has a desire to destroy you and you really have left them alone then you have a right and obligation to respond with overwhelming force. But there's the second issue. The second issue is all those people who've been locked away into a world now without freedom, into cultures that have fundamental problems. And now in our day and age, we're all about talking about how all cultures are equal and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
I think that's true so long as you're willing to move your axioms around. If your axiom for your culture is submission to Allah in the way defined by the Taliban's interpretation of Sharia, then anything goes. And if your axiom is individual freedom, then obviously that won't match up. That won't fit. Lots of axioms out there. As much as ethicists like to talk about golden rules or what have you, the fact is, is that there's many, many different approaches to what's appropriate. But one thing that I think is really critical is giving people the opportunity to choose a cultural environment and value system that they personally embrace. So the Taliban control Afghanistan. People need to be able to choose and have a way out. They need to be able to find other societies where they can live a better life. A life that they embrace. Panjir Valley can let some people through. Obviously, it's very hard. It's very difficult to, to, to handle the people there. It's very hard for them to get in. Um, it's quite a locked up place. But what we've done is we've taken all these people and abandoned them completely to their fate. Not the U.S.'s job to get involved in every fight. But if we want to improve the world, we have to give people the opportunity to get involved. But we also have to give them the opportunity to adjust their culture so that it can accept things like the rule of law and constitutions and the such. Those constitutions can take many different forms. But the culture has to be one in which the words that are written on a page end up having actual value and force. And adapting culture requires people from those cultures to do it. It requires them to take the opportunity themselves to remeld and to reform what they already have into something new and, by some measure, something better. The classic example is Amsterdam during its golden age. It ended up tweaking something. It added the idea of toleration. Jews moved there. Or Protestants or Catholics or even Muslims who lived in Amsterdam. And you ended up with a city that absolutely flourished and provided a model to the rest of Europe in the midst of wars that had killed something like a third of the population. That city on a hill model changed China from a Maoist system to a capitalist system. It didn't open up political freedom. Hong Kong didn't have political freedom. But the Hong Kong economic example transformed China. Perhaps it's no accident. Now that China has crushed Hong Kong, they're walking back on those same economic freedoms. That city of hope, that city of change, made up of Chinese people, have been undermined. I think Kabul had the chance to be that kind of place if it had been defended. As things began to fall, I hope that Mazar Sharif was a place that could be turned into a similar city, a protected place where people could flee to, where people could set up a better society, a society that was freer, where women had rights, where minorities had rights. That would have been nice. Of course, that was overrun as well. But going forward, if the U.S. wants to be a positive force in the world, it has to give people a way to integrate with a new way of life. Now, coming to the U.S. itself is one thing. The problem with that is you end up moving the problems 
if you bring in a massive uh, community of Taliban, for example, you're going to end up with Taliban in the U.S. You're not going to end up with a new society. They're going to have little enclaves and they're going to have their issues. So really, I continue to think that the city on a heights model where you establish free cities where people can come and live lives under a new way of life, a new way of government, and flee what they came from, just like Hong Kong was, just like Amsterdam was, in a way like West Berlin, although not many people could flee there, you will end up with the opportunity to export the values that you hold dear. Of course, the core problem with this is that the U.S. doesn't have values right now. The U.S. has conflict. This has always long-time conflict, of course. But the U.S. had this massive conflict between these competing worldviews. And they're absolutely disconnected from one another. So there's nothing for them to export. The funny thing is, is that you don't really need something to export. If you look at the example of Hong Kong, it was a British territory. Britain was in the middle of going through this masses massive socialization and nationalization of industry and bringing everything under central control, moving towards a heavily socialist model, something that remains even today in Scotland and Wales, where the government is by far the largest provider of GDP. I think somebody said that Scotland at this point has a higher percentage of GDP provided by the government than the Soviet Union did. But in the middle of this, there was Hong Kong. And it was a city that was the most capitalist place in the world. Almost. Right, possibly. It was being run as a British protectorate, but under a very different system. And it ended up, I believe, influencing Britain almost as much as it influenced China. So just because the U.S. is having these problems doesn't mean it can't establish something new, something different, some sort of haven for people. And the U.S. certainly has the military force, especially when using short-range rocket protections and things like that that have come online recently. The U.S. certainly has the military force to establish a safe haven. Kabul is a terrible place to do it because it's surrounded by all these mountains which have much higher peaks. But someplace in the region, perhaps someplace on a coast, the U.S. could establish a free city and enable people to have a place to go. And to build something new and to show that their cultures can build something new, something better than what the Taliban is providing. We're so incredibly helpless watching what's going on, seeing the incredible stupidity at work, all the other countries in the world wondering how they're going to take advantage of the situation, or how they're going to suffer because of it. And it's all because of decisions being made by a few people. Reckless decisions being made by a few people. Now maybe Trump would have made the same decisions. I'm not arguing that. The decisions that have been made are going to cost the United States greatly. And we're seeing that bill come due already. I wish I had some great uplifting thing to say, some great uplifting idea and concept to end this with. But I do think there's this. The U.S. really can export and support better ways of life elsewhere. They just have to keep their eyes on the ball. 
friend of mine texted me. He was very upset about my last podcast. He said, listen, among many other things, he said, listen, the U.S. has been blessed by God to have the power, the prestige, the technology, the society, et cetera, et cetera, that it has. And it has to use that blessing in a very positive way. And I agree with that. But that doesn't mean managing other countries. I don't think that that's a helpful or a good approach to do things. It can mean influencing them, as I've discussed. It can mean helping to lift them up. But fundamentally, the concept that God has blessed America, so America has to bless the world, is something that is so foreign to so many Americans today that I don't think it holds any political weight. Not any meaningful political weight. To enunciate that and to share that on the national stage, I don't think it would get you anywhere. Nonetheless, perhaps, that is exactly the message that the American people need to hear. The United States has been blessed, and so it has an obligation to share the blessings within their own people, of course, and around the world as well. Thank you for listening, and Shabbat Shalom.